are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. And today we're listening to a lecture Campbell gave at the Esalen Institute sometime around 1967. He began going to Esalen in 1965 and returned in March each year to celebrate his birthday and give a series of lectures in Big Sur, a place that he described as paradise on the Pacific coast. The lecture we're going to hear covers familiar territory for many listeners, but there are some gems scattered throughout. Campbell is lecturing on the basic fundamental constituents of a functional mythological tradition, with an eye toward successive lectures that explore elements of the mystical and the hero's journey. In this lecture, Professor Campbell focuses on the ways that myth changes over time, and in fact, the ways that myth must change over time for it to remain functional or alive. After this lecture, next month we'll focus on a lecture from this same 1967 Esalen series called The Quest for the Grail. Let's take a moment to talk about mysticism. We're certainly familiar with that word. We use it all the time, and it's often the case, just as when we use the word God, we don't exactly know what we're trying to describe. Mystic is a word derived from a Greek word, myo, which means initiate, like the initiate in a mystery cult, such as the great cult of Demeter in Eloisus. Over time, mysticism began to be understood in terms of the Unio mystica, the mystical union, which was understood to be the soul's ecstasy in contemplation of God and created a kind of spiritual marriage. In time, especially during and after Romanticism, which shifted the emphasis from theology to individuals and from a specific spiritual mystical union with God to a union with the absolute or infinite, but even long before Romanticism, there were mystics like Pseudo-Dionysus the Euripigate, for whom the most desirable mystical experience was not a union with God or anything else, but the experience of the void, of nothingness, which was considered to be a state of pure consciousness in which the mind has been emptied of all objects, concepts, and images. In such a state, one loses any sense of self and experiences undifferentiated unity. I often think this is the place Professor Campbell lands with his concept. I often think this is the place Professor Campbell lands with the concept of mystical experience. He often uses the phrase transparent to the transcendent, and I suspect this dropping away of even the remote awareness of a physical, material sense of self and merging with the ultimate consciousness may have been exactly what he meant. Of course, many scholars have, for the most part, dismissed mysticism as a fiction, or worse, as delusional. Others have expanded the idea of mysticism and use it to refer to all manner of alternate states of consciousness. One of the more familiar criticisms of Joseph Campbell is that he is a comparativist in his studies of myth, 
and that comparative lens is very present in this lecture. It's always tempting for detractors to raise the criticism that Campbell tends to disregard differences in individuals, groups, and cultures. For instance, in this lecture, he's not literally saying that half the world lived one way and the other half lived another way. He's theorizing about how human beings developed various mythic ideas and ideologies regarding death. While it is often the case that comparative methodologies are criticized by particularists, and there is an undeniable preference, especially in the humanities, for examining differences, comparative methodologies don't merely look only for similarities. Comparing phenomena necessarily identifies differences as well. Even if cataloging similarities were the ultimate goal, one could only be assured one had found all the similarities when there were no more differences to be accounted for. The truth is, comparativists don't deny differences. They deny the importance of differences. It may well be true that what it means to be a human being is found in those qualities, thoughts, or practices that are universal to human life and living. For instance, there is no human language that doesn't have nouns, verbs, and adjectives. And even though human societies often have very different forms of dance and music, there are no societies or culture without some form of dance or music. Finally, and Joseph Campbell is a very nice example of this, comparativism states that its findings are always provisional, that they apply only until other better observations or facts supplant them. And in fact, I'll address some of those observations in my comments after the lecture. Campbell's comparative methodology doesn't deny the special qualities, talents, or characteristics of groups of people or their myths. He simply stresses their similarities and offers explanations for those similarities, which are often defining qualities of humanity. Campbell's explorations into the similarities of thought and behavior among human beings, whether they be living or long dead, allows him to find a way of feeling about life, of relating to life, which makes the living of it enormously more satisfying. So with this brief introduction in mind, please enjoy this 1967 lecture regarding the transformations myth undergoes over time, with the recognition that Track is being laid to help us explore some of the mystical elements in the hero's journey in subsequent lectures. Immediately following this talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and explore some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. Well, first, let me uh, present what seems to me to be the basic function of a mythologically based tradition, let's say the normal, traditional mythologies of mankind have served certain functions. These are basic biological, sociological, psychological functions which must be served by any complete tradition. The first function of a viable and operating mythology is to evoke and maintain in the mentality and the emotional life of the people whom it serves. A sense of awe and respect and gratitude before the mystery of being itself. 
When that sense of awe before mystery is gone, one loses what I would call uh, the mystic dimension. And in a contemporary, extremely positivistic point of view, this is what drops out. And with this gone, a certain sense of loss inside is the result of the sense of rootlessness. The second function of a traditional mythology is to present a cosmological image, a total image of the cosmos, which will be self-consistent and which will serve, you might say, as a kind of icon, a kind of uh, uh, means to evoke that sense of awe and mystery. The traditional cosmology is also a guide to the mystical experience. And this, again, is what is shut off in our contemporary positivistic approach to science. The third function of a functioning mythology is to support and validate a society, a certain moral order. And this moral order is interpreted as part and parcel of the cosmological order, stemming from the same source, not an order that can be uh, optionally modified by human thought, but as something given. And this, again, is something that has slipped from us with the humanistic uh, attitude, the notion that intelligent human beings in counsel together can determine what, for what ends they are living, what are decent human ends, and the means for achieving these ends. In a traditional mythology, there is no optional possibility of this kind. The laws are given, and one behaves according to them. For example, in the, in the bib biblical tradition, the hypothecated being, God, who is supposed to have created the universe, is the same who is the source of the laws for the good society, namely that of the uh, Hebrew tradition. The laws delivered on Mount Sinai were delivered by the same being of beings who created the universe, and so cannot be modified. Man cannot say, well, I don't care if it's that way. In the old societies, this kind of uh, apodictic given law system is presented. The uh, fourth function of a mythology, a traditional mythology, is to integrate and coordinate the psyche of the individual to hold him in harmony, not only with the society and the universe, but also with this sense of the mystery of uh, the universe and its being. The macrocosm, the law of the great universe. The microcosm, the law, the formative law of one's own being. And what I'm going to call the mesocosm, the order of the society, through which that law, which governs the macrocosm and the microcosm, is made visible to consciousness. One might say that mythology is an order of symbols that reconciles consciousness with the preconditions of existence, of its own life. When one realizes that life and the universe was in existence for billions of years before consciousness became aware of it, and became shocked at what life is. The monstrous thing of now you eat me, now I eat you. This fact that life lives on life 
is something that the consciousness has to be reconciled to. And the function, the traditional function of mythology, was to do that, to say yay, not nay, to this monstrous thing, which is the mystery of life itself. And when the symbols really work, they evoke an affirmation of life, not a revolt from it, not a canceling out of it. This canceling out, there is an actual historical moment where it first appears. It appears at the end of the old kingdom in Egypt, what I call the moment of the great reversal, when all the yeas became nays, and there was a renunciation and a departure system. Now, in these four functions, we might call them the mystical, the first one, the evocation of awe, the cosmological, the second one, which is the function of our physical sciences for us now, the sociological, which in our world has become a matter of humanistic, um, rational decision, not something that we have to submit to as derived from the past, and finally, the psychological. Now, in the course of history, the course of the history of mankind, the second and third are the two that have most greatly changed. The, with the development of our instruments of science, the whole cosmology has changed. Cosmology of an ancient tradition no longer works for us. And when we give our affirmation, our faith, as we call it, to a cosmology like that of the Bible, which was out of date when it was put into the book already, uh, we lose a sense of uh, conviction. No mythology that is going to work can be out of accord with the science of the period. It is ridiculous to have people pray on Sunday to, in the uh, order of a cosmos that dates from 3000 BC, which is the date for the biblical three-layer universe out of the old Babylonian and Sumerian traditions. Uh, a vital tradition has to be right in accord with the highest knowledge of the moment. Now, of course, the problem today is that this highest moment changes from decade to decade. It's amusing to hear religious people speak. They always speak as though the oldest tradition they can think of is probably the best. But any scientific work that is 10 years old is already out of date. Things are changing so fast, and yet one has to remain in, uh, in a positive, total relationship to this fact that there is no longer any Gibraltar rock of truth where anybody can say, this is the final thing. There is a fluent changing of truth. We are left without that support which the older traditions had, and this is a very important fact. The second po point is that the third uh, function that I speak of, namely that of the social order, is also in flux. And it is the, the characteristic and the great value of our tradition that the human judgment has come in to decide what are the goals that we're going to work for and how do we work for them. And then on Sunday we hear a lot of rules coming down that uh, date back again to antiquity and have nothing to do with the proprieties and decencies of contemporary life. To hear, for instance, the Vatican telling us about birth control is, is, a, is a wild joke. Uh, this is altogether out of accord with the possibilities of decent human living today and the values that are available to us in human relationships. So I want to speak first this evening about the, the stages and the historical transformations 
uh, that relate to the second and third of the functions that I spoke of, the cosmological and the sociological. As for the mystery of awe, which is the key mystery of religion, in Otto, um, uh, what's his name? Roth. Uh, no, not Otto Roth. The, uh, the um, idea of the holy. Rudolf Otto. Thank you. In his uh, book, this is the key sentiment of the religious experience. The sense of awe, even terror, demonic dread before the mystery of being itself. This remains throughout the religious traditions. It is the same today, it is the same mystery as it was for the cavemen. The other factor that remains constant is the human anatomy. There has been almost no sense of change in the human anatomy since 30,000 BC and the origination case. And the psychology, the nerve system that has to be organized in the gland system and so forth in relationship to this has remained constant also. So one and four are going to be our constants. <coughs> We're going to be able to refer to them as constants. Two and three are the functions that will be changing. Now with respect to the great changes in the history of our race. The first great crisis, the one that uh, must be considered as absolutely uh, critical, was that which occurred with the development of agriculture and animal husbandry in the Near East about 8,000 BC. With this, the economy of human society was changed from food foraging and hunting to food production. And with this, comparatively large societies could develop. Now I want to speak first of the primitive societies, uh, the mythologies of these, in a very brief way, uh, antecedent to this invention, and then the patterns of development since, which are those which are now disintegrating under our own eyes. In the primitive traditions, one can divide the primitive world roughly into two great categories. Those are the people in the northern zones of the great hunt, where men lived with a society and environment of animals as its uh, counterplayer, the human society and the animal society, interdependent and representing the laws of life. The uh, great German anthropologist uh, Leo Frobenius years ago spoke of animalism as the uh, key word to this social order. Man experiences from the animal world its sense of the other, that other one, the thou to whom he has to relate. In these societies, all of the food is largely uh, brought by the men, and so there is a very strong masculine <coughs> emphasis. Furthermore, the food is acquired by killing, so there's a very strong aggressive emphasis. A death, killing, and the masculine ego assertion are dominant here. Furthermore, it makes a considerable difference as to whether a man can come back with the bacon or not. That is to say, skill counts. And uh, the uh, praise and prestige of the individual and prowess is one of the characteristics of these societies, that claim given to the one who really brings the pot. Um, now, the act of killing, when you realize that in the primitive world there was not felt to be this great division between man and the animal, which we feel. Killing an animal and killing a man were equivalent acts. And killing, killing, killing is not an easy thing to assimilate psychologically. And so a screening concept comes in. 
namely, the concept that there is no death. There is no death. The animal killed is returned to the mother thought. This is the, uh, the principal hunting ritual. The blood is returned to the soil. This is the basis, actually, of some of the kosher ideas of uh, bleeding the animal before eating it. It goes back to the old hunting principle of returning the life principle to the earth. And then with the covenant, one might say, between man and beast, one can depend on the animals offering themselves as willing sacrifices, uh, being honored in the ritual, returned to the source so that they can come back the next year and give their mere body. This idea of death as simply a passing back and forth through the wall, space, there will be a reliving of the life. There are many, many examples of this in the, in the current traditions, and I'm not going to rehearse them. I spoke of these uh, last year. I'm going back over the things I spoke of last year. When one turns from the hunting world of the northern plains to the tropical world, we shift from an area of animal life as being the sign of uh, the nature of existence to an essentially vegetal world, the world of the jungle and the tropical forest, within which men and animals are simply paused, but the dominant image is that of the plant. And the dominant image here is of rotting leaves, rotting wood, from which life comes. The idea of life coming out of death. And this becomes a major theme in the rituals of these people. It is throughout the tropical zone that we have the rituals of killing animals and killing men and women, torturing the sacrificial system out of which life is supposed to come by a kind of creation of mulch, you might say. The more death, the more life. It is in these traditions that uh, the uh, really appalling ritual of uh, killing, burying, and then the plants that come up from the dead, the prime myth, by the way, is of a divine being who was killed, dismembered, his body planted, and the food plants came up from this buried body. So that in eating the food plants, you are eating the God. It is a willing giving of the divine body to be eaten. We get this, of course, in the uh, communion ideas of the later religious tradition. <coughs> now, in this world of the plant, Anybody can pick a banana, so that individual prowess counts for nothing. Furthermore, whereas in the hunting world, the masculine principle is the dominant one, the feminine principle is the dominant one here. The earth is, by analogy, compared to a woman giving birth and uh, furnishing nourishment to her children. So it is here that the dominant female image comes in, in contrast to the male of the north. Well, the primitive mythologies in general can be regarded in broad lines in terms of these two contrasting traditions. And always, of course, it's the warrior, northern people who conquer the, uh, the planting people. And it is from these combinations of a masculine orientation and a feminine orientation that the uh, larger civilizations emerge. So much then for, that, uh, for the primitive system. When we come to the uh, later systems of the agricultural and uh, um, uh, animal husbandry traditions, these originate in the Near East about 8,000 BC. Here, 
settled communities emerge. And these become gradually enlarged until by about 3500 BC, that's to say some 3000 years after the first inventions of uh, these arts, we have little cities emerging in uh, the Mesopotamian and later slightly uh, the uh, Nilotic areas. In the earlier hunting traditions, everybody in these tiny little societies was in complete control of the entire social heritage. We have a society of equivalent adults. In the larger groups, we begin to have a division of functions, professional priests, professional governing people, professional trading people, and people whose whole lives are devoted <coughs> to the arts, the artisans, and the, the toil of the field. So we have a differentiation, and we have people of quite different upbringing, quite different training, who have to regard themselves as constituting a unit. And it is at this moment that a new notion comes, namely of the society, not the individual, the society as the unit, and the individual as an organ in this society. Now the most important people in this context for our present discussion were the priests, professional priests, devoted to regarding the heavens for signs, signs that would indicate the proper moment for planting, the proper moment for reaping, proper moment for this, that, and the other, as well as for oracles. And it was these priests in the Mesopotamian zone who, through meticulous observation of the heavens, first detected and recognized the movements of the planet through the fixed constellations. Not only did they detect their movement, but they recognized that they moved with a mathematical regularity. And it was in this period, let us say, 3500 BC, as a, as a kind of scheduled date, that the concept of a cosmic order comes into being, an impersonal cosmic order, which the society ought to duplicate. And you have the king then wearing the horns of the moon, the moon god, the lord of death and resurrection, or wearing the rays of the sun. And you have a schedule of festivals for the religious life based on the date of the sun becoming uh, less and less prominent in the, the fourth of the day and finally at uh, Christmas time or the new year beginning to come to birth again and so forth and so on. Our religious schedule still follow the patterns of the astronomical laws. As in heaven, so on earth. It is at this time also that writing comes into being, mathematics, the mathematics that we still use for measuring the circles of time and of space. The concept that mathematics is the answer to the secret of the universe, and that the priests who know these mathematics uh, are the <coughs> ones who can dictate the mysteries. Well, this is the period of the emergence of the civilizations of which we are now the participants. The next great period of crisis is in our own time, with the invention in the period of the Renaissance and thereafter of the scientific method of research and the power-driven machine. <coughs> this is creating today a crisis in the development of human civilization that is a match in its spectacular, dramatic force to that of the invention of agriculture. As I was saying this morning up in San Francisco in the meeting we had up there, it took 4,000 years for man to assimilate and to abate uh, 
but it's society on a harmonized to mythology following this great crisis, and we mustn't be in too much of a hurry. It will not be we who find the settled and final laws. It is we, on the other hand, who are in and living in that moment of crisis and discovery and invention and uh, rediscovery, which uh, will be the foundation. We are, as it were, the stages of those who will be living hundreds of years from now. This is the counterpart to that other, that other period. Well, so much for that. We have these three great periods of uh, myth mythological development, that of the great primitive time with its two orders, that of the great monumental civilizations from about 3500 BC until the emergence now of the modern world, and now what may be called the global civilization with the power-driven machine and uh, the scientific method of uh, intentional research to find the truth, not just the accidental thing that happens to come, but now searching it out. And the, you might say, the courage for the truth, where the truth is shatters a social order, let it do so. Follow the truth is, the, is really the, you might say, the courage system of our contemporary day. Now, to uh, move down one step. Let me uh, say a word about the nature of the great monumental mythologies which are disintegrating. They fall into two great systems, which I'll call the Oriental and the Occidental. And the line can be drawn through Iran or Persia that separates these two worlds. West, eastward of Iran, we have two great creative culture centers. One is India and the other is the Far East. Southeast Asia is properly Indo-China. It has received its civilization from those two zones. Tibet has received its civilization largely from India. And, uh, and so it is. The two great centers are the Chinese and the Indian. Now, when you look at these two zones on a map, you see that they are shut off from the rest of the world. India on the north by the great Himalayan mountains, and on its other two sides by the great oceans. And the harbors were very few, and the coast very dangerous for small shipping. So that India was isolated. Likewise, China is isolated. The great uh, mountains and uh, deserts uh, westward of China have kept it aloof. So that new influences coming into these two spheres have been assimilated by the social structures, the culture structures already present. There has been, up to the very present, no massive assault on the already established patterns there. Now, when were the patterns, the assimilating patterns, established? They were established toward the close of the Bronze Age. They represent that uh, system of civilization which emerged in Mesopotamia during the period that I've just been speaking about. And the great mythologies of India and the Far East are those of this impersonal realm. No will behind it, just an impersonal round. The deities are simply functionaries of this great impersonal system. The society itself is a precipitation of this. The laws of nature, the laws of society, they are exactly the same. And the human beings are simply cells or organs in this great organism. The cosmos itself is represented as a vast human being. The society as a vast or smaller but nevertheless vast human beings. For example, the head is compared to the Brahmin caste of the society, is compared to the head of the social human being. 
the Kshatriyas, or governing caste, to the shoulders and mighty arms of this great human being. The uh, merchant caste and the money caste, the substantial middle caste, to the middle section of the human being, which is the society. And the legs to the social, uh, to the um, uh, uh, lower caste, on whom we stand, so to say. Now, everyone enjoys himself as part of this great human being. And what would happen if the legs wished to be the heads? Or if we were to say, well, let's have uh, desegregation here. Let's have uh, assimilation. This would be cancer. This would be the disintegration of the differentiated organism. And the feeling in the East, in India and China, about this democratic principle that we represent is that it represents the disintegration of the society. In the traditional Indian system, the worst thing that can happen is what is called mixture of caste, where the head and feet get all mixed up and you don't know what you've got. This is the end of the world. Everything turns into a mush, and the only thing that is next in order is the cosmic flood, where it will all be wiped out so that we can take a fresh start and come back in a good old caste system again. <coughs> Um, this is the pattern of these Eastern systems. Furthermore, there's the notion that we have in our own uh, heritage from that <coughs> same period of the, the decline of the world, the ages of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. That represents the decline. Life becomes more and more violent. Life loses more and more of its inner structure. It is just falling apart. And this is the, gen the general pattern in the traditional East about the contemporary world. And when we speak about our advances, the mechanistic world and so forth, and all these wonderful things, uh, I'm simply proof that we have lost the inner force. We're depending on outer support. Now, turning from that world of the East to the world of the West, here also, westward of Iran, there are two great creative centers. One is the Near East, and this is the area where agriculture and the first great societies of higher order emerged. And the second area is Europe, the Levant and Europe. Europe is the classical land of the old Stone Age, the Great Hunt, the caves of Altamira, Lascaux, and so forth, 30,000 BC. There's nothing like that anywhere in the world. The European culture is the oldest culture in the world, really. And uh, it is from there that the great uh, warrior races have come that uh, have uh, represented the uh, the next great stage in the culture development, namely of the Iron Age, which comes in in Europe about 1200 BC. Here, the spirit of the hunt, the spirit of the masculine will, is dominant. It was in these zones, <coughs> about 1800 BC, that the war chariot was invented, that the mastery of the horse was uh, worked out. And with the war chariot, Man has a sense of being able to conquer. So you don't have the feeling that you have in the Orient of submission to this inevitable round. There is rather the attitude of, I have the power to master the world. And you get this not only in the Aryan races in the North, in the European and uh, East, uh, or, or rather West Asian grasslands with their herds and their uh, war chariots, but also from the Semitic people in the uh, Syro-Arabian desert, which is the homeland of the Semites. There, too, you have warrior races. And it was about the second millennium BC that these two uh, uh, warrior peoples in strength 
began moving in on the peasant people and uh, uh, high culture people of the middle zones. Uh, the words in the Old Testament, whose those cities you did not build, you shall inhabit. Those fields you did not plant, you shall reap, represents the spirit of these two warrior races. And they despise the cult of the land devoted to that goddess Earth who brings forth the land, uh, the, the fruits of the land, and whose cults are phallic and sexual. These are uh, despised by these warrior people whose divinity, time of India, is not the goddess mother, but the thunder hurler whose weapons smash those that are alien to his cult. Now these two races come in and we have mythologies of the will of the individual. You have in the Bible, for instance, not an impersonal universe with gods as, their as the functionaries of a system and order that is uh, from all eternity, but you have a willing entity who decides to create a world and creates it. Similarly, in the classical tradition, you have divinities who have a certain will, but there we do not find the uh, Greeks, for example, going as far as the Hebrew in uh, disregarding and uh, relegating to the discard the feminine principle or the principle of faith, Moira, who governs even the gods. Now when we turn to the problem of the awe before the universe. In the eastern zones, whether it's India or China, the basic thought is this, that the ultimate mystery of being, that ultimate before which we are to feel awe, is beyond all definition. There is no way to characterize it. When we ask, is God merciful, just, love, God is love, God is all this, that's simply anthropomorphic projection of human values on a mystery. And from the Oriental standpoint, this is to short-circuit the whole problem. You don't even realize how mysterious it is. This is, you might say, kindergarten thinking in the sphere of the mystic. The mystic problem lies beyond these definitions. And to say, our God is God, that is simply ridiculous. You have his name, you know the book he wrote, you know the laws, you know his qualities. This is simply a projection of your own character. And that's all a God is. A named, defined God is a projection of the person who named him and defined him. And the character of the namer is there in that God. The mystery lies beyond all this. That is why polytheism is, in a sense, a far more sophisticated form of religiosity than monotheism. Monotheism says, we know who he is. Polytheism says, all men have their jumping off place to the mystery a jumping-off place which is appropriate to their style of thinking. Therefore, let us have as many gods as we have modes of human experience, because the divine lies beyond these modes and is approached through them. However, that mystery which transcends all discussion is your mystery. It is the mystery of your being. You are it, Tatsvamasi. That which you are seeking is your own very self, but not you as you define yourself. 
not you, as your friends love you and your enemies despise you. Not you, as you think of yourself. We have this paradox. You are that, and you are not that. You could write a little equation. Think of yourself as A, and the mystery is X. A is not, is X. That oxymoron, that self-contradictory statement, I am, I am not, is the key to all oriental mysticism and thinking. This goes for the gods themselves. They are projected out there. We know that they are projected. One worships, but through the deity you are worshiping that mystery which is your own mystery. So that the ultimate uh, act of worship in the uh, oriental system is to realize that the god worship is the mirror image, is a kind of uh, uh, fluoroscopic mirror image of your own true being. In the Western world, insofar as our religions have come from the Levant, on the other hand, we say God created the world, God created man, and these are not the same. The Oriental religions are religions of identity. I'm speaking to the mystical point now. The mysticism of identity here, to realize that you are it. When Paul says, I live now not I, but Christ in me, he would not have made the next step, which would say, I am the Christ, which is exactly what the Oriental mystic would have said. In Paul's case, you have a relationship, not an identity. Our religions, coming from the Near East, are religions of relationship, and the prime heresy is the identity heresy. <coughs> this, this week, and heretics are, uh, mystics are always on the brink of the identity experience. If they're going to survive after they've come out of it, they have to learn to speak of it as a relationship. Otherwise, they will be theoretically condemned. Now, when you have a relationship, I and God, what is the means for the relationship? Well, just think about our religion. In Judaism, God, the only God, has a covenant with a people. That's the only covenant he has. The only way to get into a relationship to God is through membership in this group. That is to say, the social relationship is the means of relationship to God. And this is an idea that comes right down to our whole tradition. In the Christian, God's Son, Jesus Christ, is true God and true man. Through our humanity, we relate to Jesus. Through his divinity, he relates us to Christ, to, to God. The only way to become related to God is through the church that he founded, again, a social institution. One judges, and this is simply an, uh, an infection in the West, one judges value in terms of one's social identification. One's relationship to the realm of ultimate value is by way of one's group relationship. The divine has been dissociated from life. It is not in the world, it is out there. I call this mythic dissociation. How do you get in relationship to the divine? Through social identification. And now look what has happened. As a result of historical research and scientific knowledge, these claims have been called into doubt. They have been called into question. We doubt them. 
so that there is a sense of loss. We call this alienation. The religion alienated us from our own divinity, and science has alienated us from the divinity, the claims of divinity, of the society. So one is left without it. And it is so that when one speaks about the divine as being here, being in oneself, being in whatever you're looking at, as a dimension of mystery, the good old positivist thinks one's a fool. But that's what one's seeking. This is the mystical problem. Now, there are two languages of mysticism. One is this relationship language, which is the language of the orthodox mystics in the West, and the other is the identity language, which is the language of the orthodox in the East and the heretics here. When a man like uh, Meister Eckhart says, it is a more worth to God that Jesus should be born in your soul than that he should have been born in Jerusalem, <coughs> he's summoned to Rome. And it's not a misfortune for the church that he died before he got there. The, uh, the uh, claim of divinity within is, uh, is the problem that we're going to have to deal with a little bit uh, this weekend. Now, let me take one more point. When you have two entities, God and man, there's an ultimate question of your final loyalty. Is it to God or is it to man? In the uh, Levantine order, the final loyalty is to God, and I won't go into it uh, too far, but the book of Job is the type book here, where God behaves outrageously to Job and uh, then he, he made the best of the devil and he could annoy Job as much as he wanted do his nasty things as he pleased to him and Job was still remained loyal to God because Job was a good man and uh, so Job, you know what happened, he had a bad time <laughs> and uh, finally his friends come and say well Job, you must really have misbehaved or this wouldn't have happened to you the book says that when you misbehave you're punished and Job says, no, I've been a good man and he was right, he was being punished because he was a good man and when uh, this challenge finally brings God, does God say, look, Job, I had the best of my friends here, the devil, and uh, you've done awfully well. He didn't do that. <laughs> or did he try to rationalize it? He just says, are you big? Could you fill Leviathan's nose with harpoons? I did. Who are you, little thing, to wonder about me? And Job covers his head with ashes and forbids. This is the heroism, you might say of the submission of humanity to the mystery. This is the great religious <coughs> attitude. What is my brain to challenge the mystery of the universe? These things happen. But no Greek would have done that. Or when you read Aeschylus's wonderful Prometheus, says Prometheus pinned to a rock by a god who is also big, he could show Leviathan's nose without wounds, namely Zeus. And when he sends a little messenger to Prometheus to say, look, apologize and he'll let you loose. What does Prometheus say? Said, I despise him. Tell him that. Let him do what he likes. Uh, in the Greek world, where the gods behave like monsters, they lost faith. You uh, read of it, and they joke. The, uh, <coughs> but you don't annoy them, and you wonder what a dog that was dangerous. Uh, this attitude is quite contrary to that of the Levant. It is an admiration for the highest manifestation of the divinity of life, which is namely the human mind and the human values. Man is the flower of the universe. And its lower orders, yes, they are divine too, but you don't put them above this. 
Now, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we're on the side of Prometheus. And Sunday for an hour, let's go. And as I like to say, the next day, you're on the psychiatrist's side. Then uh, the audience, this wouldn't make sense at all. Because the two powers, that of the mind and that of the divine, represent the two aspects of that one mystery, which is the mystery of being itself. Now this, I'm just trying to set up the field of our problem here. First, the four functions of mythology. Next, these three great periods of mythology, the primitive, the monumental of the great high cultures, which divides into four great domains, and now this moment of transformation when all these different attitudes and domains are coming together <laughs> and challenging each other, and we are facing what we can call the period of comparison where the loser is going to lose. The greater value is what is going to remain, and the challenges are what are facing us today. Now, so much then for the transformation of mythology in the spheres of culture history, uh, cosmology, and social order. Now, where are we going to find a, a solid base from which to regard the whole problem? It will be in the two spheres, one and four, that of the sphere of mystery and that of the sphere of the human psyche. So let us now, in the next phase of this uh, hour, uh, regard the common problems of man everywhere, those that are normal, which mythology has to serve, which it has served. What are the problems? In the first place, the human species differs from all other species in that it has the longest infancy of any animal. For 12 years, the human infant is practically uh, is dependent. And then on to 21 or so, it is still growing, reaching maturity. You can date the first 21 or 25 years as the years of growth of this theme. And in the first stages of this period, its attitude is of dependency on adults. It would not survive. It can't get up and run around as, as a little horses do, little colts. It, it is an absolutely uh, impotent creature. And so during these years, an attitude of response, a response system, is established of uh, dependency. Then suddenly, on entering this age of uh, adolescence and so forth, one is supposed to be responsible. And this problem of transforming a psychology of dependence into a psychology of responsibility is the crisis of adolescence, which mythologies have to serve, and they have served this. One might say the human fetus is born too soon, and the society has to constitute a second womb, a kind of womb with a view. The <laughs> mythology is the warmth of this womb. And this is rather important for the following point. Its function is to assist a little organism to grow, like a hothouse for plants, like a pot for plants. You don't ask, what is the meaning of the pot? Is it rational? Uh, what uh, concepts can I associate with? No, all that out. This is just something uh, to, to fertilize and to support the growth of a little organism. It needn't be rational. It, it can't be rational because irrational elements in the organism have to develop also. 
Mythology is basically life. It has no meaning. Neither has life any meaning. We like to read meanings into it. There are no end of possible meanings. What is the meaning of my life? Well, what kind of meanings do you want? The, the, uh, the attention to read meaning is simply to short-circuit again the mystery of something that transcends definition. The Buddha is called the Tathagata, the one who has thus come. His talk is secondary. His being is what counts. And so this is with life, and so this is with mythology. But it should be there to support this thing. And when the rationalist comes in and says, well, this doesn't make sense, let's take it away, that's like saying, well, let's take down the hothouse and let the cold air in and kill the plant. And then you wonder why we have these psychological abortions. People who uh, finally end up on the couch uh, weeping uh, at the age of 45 because daddy spanked them at the age of four. The, uh, the inability to make the transit from an attitude of dependency to responsibility, courageous, manly, or womanly responsibility for life is the problem of the neurotic. The neurotic is a person who in his middle life reacts first <coughs> where's daddy? And then, oh, he died 20 years ago. Uh, I got to do it myself. This sort of uh, tension between dependency and the realization that one has to become responsible. Then the next phase of the problem comes in that man of all animals has the longest period of fame power and old age. And it is furthermore the only animal that knows of itself as facing death, as an inevitable. The facing of death with equanimity is something that the mythologies have to give assistance to. So here there's two great functions. First, helping young people become mature and face life and not be afraid of its monstrosity and horror. And the other, letting mature people give it up. And the worst of it is, Somewhere in middle life, this crisis comes. Just about when you've learned to do the job you're supposed to do, you begin to fumble the ball. The, the powers are going, and you're going down, and you think, well, I just learned to sing, and now my voice is gone. That kind of thing. When does that moment come? Well, there's a little joke I rather like, that uh, the first half of life, for the male, the principal interests are wine, women, and song what they ought to be. And then in the second half, it's Metrical, the same old gal, and sing along with Mitch. When this, <laughs> this thing comes, you come to that, that noon moment, which is the moment when white turns into black. Youth facing the terror of life, maturity, loving life, with the failure coming. <clears throat> All of the symbols just turn over, and the mythologists have to handle both ends of this. Now, in our psychological system, it is Freud, who has really been concerned largely with getting young people over the threshold. And it is Freud, uh, Jung, who has been mostly concerned with helping older people over the threshold, what he calls an antiodromia, where everything turns topsy-turvy. Uh, this is the moment of the nervous breakdown, when Daddy, who has been quite a, a tough guy and uh, quite a succeeding man, suddenly begins to look with sort of adolescent moon eyes at the little uh, girl. Daddy has uh, begun to tip over. Or the mother, who has given her whole life to her family, and the family disappears, and then she becomes the avid power mother, no longer loved, but trying to hold everybody to her. 
to grab life back. This tipping over is uh, one of the concerns of Jung, and it's the thing that leads to contrast in later life. When activity becomes compulsive, no longer under control, when you can't help it, that you're doing the thing you know darn well you don't want to do, something inside has taken over. How are we going to adjust it? Now, uh, so much then for the great pattern that mythology has to serve. This is the base, actually, the psychological level to carry young people into life and older people out of life. It is in the middle section, in the kind of life to which people are being brought, that the societies differ from one another. The training of a young man to go out and kill mammoths with sticks is very different from the training of a young man to plant the soil. The training of young men in military societies is very different from that of the training of artisans. Uh, it is in these spheres of the social commitment that the great differences come. But the continuity through all mythologies uh, are in these larger psychological problems in general, are from youth to maturity, from maturity to old age. Now to contrast the East and West in this, uh, I, uh, let me just very briefly compare the four stages of life as described in India with the four stages of life as described by Dante in the Convito. This seems to me to be one of the most vivid contrasts uh, of East and West. And you will see what the values, I think, are in the two traditions that we're trying to compare. In, in India, the four stages are known as the four ashramas, or four uh, disciplines of life. Life is divided in half, uh, classically uh, into 15-year brackets. First two fifteen belong to the first half of life, the second two fifteen to the last half of life. The first half of life is lived in the village, the second half of life in the forest for the, for the male. The, um, each half is itself divided in half, so we have four stages. The first half of each half is devoted to learning the lessons, the second to applying them. The first of the four ashramas is that of the student. The student is disciplined by his teacher. The teacher is the guru. It may be his father, it may be uh, the local um, Brahmin, it may be simply the master craftsman of his guild or his caste. The function of a guru is very different from that of a teacher in our culture. The guru is expected to be the model for the student. He not only is a communicator of information, he is the life model the student is to imitate, to identify with the guru. Also, he is not to criticize the guru. The student is to accept the guru's words as infallible. The guru accepted his guru's words as infallible, and so on ad infinitum backward. So there is no creative initiations here of new thoughts. The goal is to reflect the old thoughts as accurately as possible uh, without any personal um, change. In this sense, the individual is to eliminate himself, to erase himself. Egolessness is the goal of this whole culture, that the ego should not be there as an interrupting or deflecting factor. He is to identify himself with the role. Now, uh, there's a very pretty little anecdote. I don't know whether I told it here last year. I, I don't even know whether I talked about this last year. 
of uh, a student who came late to his guru one day, and the guru said, now, uh, you're late, where you been? Well, he said, there was a flood, I lived the other side of the river, the river's in flood, and there was no ferry, and I couldn't get there. I couldn't come across the fort. He must have to here. I said, yes, I got there. Well, how did you do it? Did the ferry come or anything like that? No. What did the student do? I just stood, I thought, well, my guru is my god. He is the vehicle of truth for me. And I will just meditate on my guru. And I did so. And uh, I walked across the water. I said, guru, guru, guru. And here I am. Well, I thought the guru. Goodness. Uh, so when the student uh, went away that evening, this uh, didn't get out of his head. And he began to think, well, I, I just have to test this thing, you know. So he goes down to the river and um, to, to see if anybody's looking. And uh, then he pulls himself together and says, I, 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 and you drown. <laughs> <laughs> the walking on water motif simply means there's nobody there, just pure spirit. Now, after the student has assimilated through perfect faith the doctrines of his guru, he's ready to be a mature little householder. That's the second stage. The marriage takes place, or is consummated. Now, these young people haven't chosen each other. There has been no self-responsible judgment here, and this is a very important point. No one has thought, what life do I want to lead? What kind of woman or what kind of man is going to be a proper counterpart to, to me? <coughs> these two people have never seen each other before. They're simply brought together by marriage brokers or family arrangements, and the great crisis, imagine it, in your own life when the veil is removed, and that's it. For the woman in particular, she may have to throw herself on that fellow's grave uh, fire uh, one fine day. And whether he's a monster or a charming youth, uh, she's his wife and he is her god. Someone asked K. Kumaswamy, who was the great uh, Indian uh, uh, art critic in the Boston Museum many, many years, uh, well, suppose the man is a monster. How should the woman behave? And Kumaswamy answers like a true Orthodox Indian as a woman in worship of her husband. No woman would sacrifice her womanhood because her husband has sacrificed his manhood. So she becomes the devotee of a mini or a monster. <coughs> There's a word in Sanskrit for truth. Satya. It's based on the root sat, which means to be. And the feminine possible of that root is sati, the woman who is a woman, burns herself on her husband's funeral pyre, no matter what he may have been. And one can say that all of Indian life is sati. One is continually burning oneself out. Ego wiped out. Now I want to make a point here. When Freud describes the ego principle, he describes it as a reality function. It is that function of the psyche which relates you to the actuality of your contemporary situation. You have not developed ego. You have wiped out ego. Ego is simply a shadow here. And it's not going to take much to knock it out altogether. And that is the problem of yoga in the forest, dissociated from the society altogether. One drops it. One drops one's zeal for pleasure. One drops one's zeal for success. One drops one's virtue. Even virtue belongs to the world, not to the inner no-being, which is your 
ultimate entity and out you go into the park and find a yogi who will give you guru instruction in the art of erasing the last vestige even of a sense of individuality even the recollection that in the course of your life there were things you liked there were things you didn't like that making of distinctions what is known as viveka as making of distinctions is the very thing that holds you to life you are to reach the state of no judgment and this you may reach by persecuting your body until you finally lose all sense but the ultimate goal is to break that grip of the cells on life that the body just didn't be and when this is achieved you become just a wandering non-entity that is the sadhu as uh, one of the great sages shankar ninth century said of the illuminated man he is like a burnt string when you see a burnt string it looks like a string when you see a sadhu it looks like a man but there's no string there there is nobody there there's a just the momentum of the organs which goes on for a while after everything is gone this is the these are the four stages of life in the indian system now let me compare with those the four stages that dante describes in the convito dante you remember in his 35th year and experienced the vision and this was the 1300th year of the christian tradition 1300 <coughs> and dante regarded 1300 as probably the middle year in the history of the world and this was a real mythological notion at the time and he regarded 35 as the middle year in life 35 then for him is that noon year the vertical <coughs> the first period of life he calls adolescence and this in his system dates to the age of 25. the virtues of this i have to smile when i think of uh, contemporary youth the <laughs> virtues of this uh, uh, period are beauty and grace obedience and a sense of shame those are the virtues of adolescence through which it assimilates the tradition and acts according to instruction youth not being worldly wise does not know how to behave in the world and would do well in the uh, in the uh, name of its growth in the interest of its growth to uh, do as society has found uh, useful then from 25 to 45 he called manhood the virtues of this period are reason prudence love upon me reason courage love loyalty and courtesy these are the nightly virtues the period from 45 to 70 he calls the age of giving not going to the far and the virtues of this period this is based on the old roman idea of the oldest citizen in the senate the virtues of this period are wisdom or prudence affability sense of uh, the goodness of people and the willingness to assist uh, them in being good and enjoying their goodness 
magnanimity or generosity of giving. And, uh, well, that's it. Those are the main versions of the text. And then finally, from 70 to death, comes the period of departure. And in this period, one is to look back on life with satisfaction and gratitude and look forward to death as returning to port, returning home. Now the great point that I want to bring out is that instead of retiring from the village to the forest, one is to stay in the world and give the benefits of one's learning. But there is another point in Dante here, namely, the man in the third stage of life, the mature, the uh, age period, is not simply to obey the law. He is to judge the law. He is to initiate new law. He is to give advice. That's to say, we don't ask for student riots to tell us how to run the world. We ask the ages to tell us how to run the world because they have experienced the world and learned something from it. Now, what is the crisis, and this is the main point of what I'm going to be talking about, what is the crisis that leads the, the man from obedience to society to the moment of obedience to his own inner law? That is the crisis of midday. That is the crisis that Dante symbolized in his divine comedy, where in the middle of his life, he found himself in a dark wood with three ravenous animals challenging him, representing the powers of lust and uh, aggression. And he makes the hero journey through hell, through purgatory, through heaven, on his own, with a guide who guides him, yes, but then Dante goes past the guide on his own. And uh, this is the theme of the hero journey. It is the theme in this mythology, in this mythology of the West, of midlife. And that's what I wanted to be talking about. This, this journey where one, with respect for the powers of the age, the virtues of the age, nevertheless discovers through a deep, difficult ordeal the principles, the new, renovating principles of life. Nietzsche speaks about this in the opening of the um, Zarathustra, in that wonderful image of the three stages of life, the, the stage of the camel, the stage of the lion, the stage of the child. You probably remember this. The camel gets down on his knees and asks, give me a heavy burden to bear. And when he has uh, taken on the burden of what he is to learn, and what he is to be able to do. He then gets to his feet and goes into the desert where he becomes transmuted into a lion. And what does the lion do? The lion kills the dragon, thou shalt. Nietzsche's description of this dragon. He comes with a thousand golden scales, and on every golden scale is written a law. And these laws date from antiquity, and they are the golden laws that have ruled the world. And the lion kills the dragon, thou shalt. But first he has been a camel. Next, after the dragon has been killed, another transformation takes place. He becomes what Nietzsche calls ein Aufsicht 
Roland's garage, a wheel rolling out of its own center, rolling from its own power, a child, moving with the innocence and spontaneity of life fulfilled in its uh, confidence and childlike in maturity as the infant in its innocence. Um, so this is what I'm going to be uh, talking about uh, in the next uh, three talks, the, 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 the imagery of this journey. This is the imagery that Joyce is dealing with in Ulysses. Possibly you remember that uh, Stephen Dedalus is walking on the sand there of Sandy Mount Shore, looking into the ocean. And it is just doom. And he thinks, in another week, the 22nd of June will be here. That is to say, the midsummer day when the sun starts down. And what he's thinking is, uh, do I dare, would I dare to lose myself in the sea, to plunge into the sea, to find the drowned man in the sea? Possibly remember that out on the uh, shore there were boats uh, fishing for a man who had drowned some time before. And he has this image of the drowned man in the sea, the mystery of the, uh, of the universe and of life. And here he is holding on to his little ego system. Would he have the, the willingness, the courage, to plunge into life where life is eaten up, where men are consumed by the fish, the sharks, and so forth, and, uh, and, and seek, as he says, the Father. So that consubstantiality, that uh, at one with the mystery of life itself. Uh, Thomas Mann gives exactly the same problem in the Magic Mountain. This is Hans Kastel's problem in the Magic Mountain. When he goes up to the realm in the noon of his life uh, and faces the mystery of death. A very interesting thing comes out in relation to Joyce and, and this uh, Sandy Mount Shore business. As uh, Elman points out in his life of Joyce, that day, was June 16th, uh, 1904, was the day when Joyce himself met the woman he married. And uh, the problem of Stephen Dedalus on the shore is marriage. The yielding of the self-protected entity male to the call to be one with something that is not just one, but two and yet one, namely the one with the mystery of life itself. And uh, as Elmer says, this was the greatest sort of uh, bouquet to his Nora that he could possibly have given. Namely, this was the day when he as Stephen the, uh, faced the power of becoming the adult and losing himself in, in life and becoming the father. Professor Campbell begins his lecture with what is, for most of you, the now familiar recapitulation of his four functions of a living mythology. The functions of myth may be understood as an answer to the question of why myth continues to be an influence on individuals and cultures. Unquestionably, the explanatory powers of these functions of mythology determine its importance for societies and individuals. And as Campbell acknowledges, the second and third functions of myth as he proposes them 
the cosmological and the sociological functions, have been overtaken by domains that provide more accurate images of not just the world and the way it functions, but of the entire universe as well. So why, when two of four important elements no longer have any epistemological value, does a myth still enjoy popularity and even authority? I've always wanted to find some clear statements with which Campbell pursues this question in greater detail, and I have yet to find such a discussion. But perhaps it boils down to the simple desire to protect oneself from the anxiety of change, any change, and in the case of myth, the nearly unimaginable magnitude and scope of change to which the human mind would have to become accustomed. Professor Campbell provides a partial answer to the perennially compelling influence of myth when, in this lecture, he remarks that, quote, mythology is an ordering of symbols that reconcile one's consciousness with the preconditions of existence, unquote. Definitionally, of course, those preconditions of life were in place long before human beings came on the scene to critically examine them. And it's the accommodating, reconciling power of myth which intrigues me. And I think one could easily imagine myths operating as a kind of technology for human beings. The purpose of technology, after all, is to make life easier, more organized, more systematic, more profitable. Technology has very little relation to understanding the world and pays very little attention to understanding the science underpinning it. In fact, scientific and epistemological understanding is often undermined by technology. Investigating and understanding is generally allocated to the province of science, while the role of technology is simply to make the world more user-friendly. Myth is metaphysical technology and operates metaphysically just as material technologies like cell phones or laptops operate in the material world. Mythology puts a tremendous amount of information at one's fingertips. Historically, the priestly classes functioned as search engines, and anything you wanted to know about the world and how it worked was within their ken to answer. But now, in the 21st century, adhering to religious dogma is like using fantastically obsolete technology. Not only is it obsolete, it's cumbersome and frustratingly difficult to interface with because it works so badly. And even if it does happen to work occasionally, one must not ask too much of it and follow the operating system rules scrupulously because if you don't, there will be hell to pay, so to speak, and other aspects of your life will suffer, be drained of joy and spontaneity, and you'll likely feel left behind as a result. It also seems to be true that, as Campbell notes in this lecture, no functional mythology can be out of agreement with the science of the day. But the science of the day is, at this moment in history, very difficult for the layperson to stay abreast of, let alone comprehend. And it's therefore easier to ignore. But one thing nearly everyone does seem to understand nowadays is that there is no final authoritative truth. This, in turn, seems to have untethered many and created a crisis of imagination in which we're experiencing what 
C.G. Jung called an impoverishment of symbols. Interestingly, way back in 1962, a philosopher, classic scholar, literary theorist, and a contemporary of Joseph Campbell by the name of Philip Wheelwright wrote this, and I quote, Our current motivating ideas are not myths, but ideologies, lacking transcendental significance. This loss of myth consciousness, I believe to be the most devastating loss that humanity can suffer. For as I have argued, myth consciousness is the bond that unites men both with one another and with the unplumbed mystery from which mankind is sprung, and without reference to which the radical significance of things goes to pot. A rather Campbellian turn of phrase, I think. Wainwright continues, Now, a world bereft of radical significance is not long tolerated. It leaves men radically unstable so that they will seize at any myth or pseudo-myth that is offered. Poets, even as Freud noted, always get to the heart of things more quickly and poignantly. And Archibald MacLeish put it this way, A world ends when its metaphor has died. It perishes when those images, though seen, no longer mean. Obviously it falls to us, to all contemporary people, in all contemporary times, to wrestle with the impoverishment of symbols and loss of myth consciousness. And it's a struggle we should embrace without worrying too much about the concomitant absence of a vital living mythology. After all, any consciously created myth or mythology will unavoidably be a pseudo-myth. We must have patience because the archetypes of the collective unconscious always open the way even through negative disclosures or an apparent absence. Such non-disclosures activate the unconscious, and libido, eros, life force, call it what you will, begins to move and create. However, we must always be on guard for the literalizing tendencies of consciousness. Not because consciousness is bad, but because the depths of ourselves and humanity can be terrifying, and any literal fact or truth with a small t is oh so comforting. This is why mythic thinking, having a mind of myth, is so important. It lets us receive the messages from the unconscious which are embedded in dreams, in personal and collective creative energies, in fantasies and longing, and without any conscious or self-conscious intention, turn them into art, by which they may eventually turn into myth. The danger of literalization was illustrated by the French poet Paul Valéry imagining that the end of the world will be when, quote, God returns to himself and says, I have dreamed, unquote. Literalism, radical materialism, a lack of imagination, are world killers. In this lecture, Professor Campbell also reminds us of the progression of human history, and again, largely for means of reference and illustration, presents an overview of a linear, progressive kind of human history from nomadic peoples to settled communities where an agriculture begins to emerge to the first cities springing up in Mesopotamia, 
this is pretty standard anthropological and archaeological fare. And for Campbell, it's a narrative that crystallized in his 1959 book, Volume 1 of The Masks of God, Primitive Mythology. While it was once widely accepted, due to recent and ongoing scholarship, this is a narrative that's changing rapidly. For instance, we've heard Professor Campbell remark that European culture is the oldest in the world. This assumption of European cultural antiquity is largely based on the art found in southern France, in caves like those at Lascaux, that dates back 1,700 years or so, or those of Chauvet that may reach back 30,000 years. But we don't often take into account that archaeological evidence from Europe is so rich because, as the Davids, Graeber and Wengro, put it in their 2021 book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, write, European governments tend to be rich, and that European professional institutions, learned societies, and university departments have been pursuing prehistory far longer on their own doorstep than in other parts of the world. The authors go on to note that even as we write, A cave site on the coast of Kenya is yielding evidence of shell beads and worked pigments stretching back 60,000 years, Now, what's more is there are cave sites in Indonesia that hold much older examples of art. One displays a painting of a life-size wild boar that dates back 45,000 years. The evidence of Early human culture is so sparse, and the span of human existence is so great that much has to be inferred about Paleolithic and Neolithic human activity. What exactly did we humans do for so much of human history? What were our interactions like 75 or 125,000 years ago? There is a generally accepted belief that very early Homo sapiens' minds worked much in the same way as our own minds do. The historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto wrote in his marvelous book called Out of Our Minds, What We Think and How We Came to Think It, the same mind that invented the atlatl invented the iPhone. But we've lived with and taken for granted the narrative of a linear, progressive development of human consciousness, intellect, and living situations, stating that relatively isolated, independent hunter-gatherers creating small settlements that eventually grew into cooperative agrarian communities, which then evolved into cities with divisions of labor, priestly castes, scribes, artisans, farmers, etc., is the correct understanding. This is a narrative that tells us that the increasing complexity and hierarchy of urban life demanded that the city itself become the central body of being, while individuals constituted merely the organs of the larger municipal entity. The rise of cities spelled the diminution of the individual. But this scenario is also being questioned and reimagined, and ancient life and living was almost certainly more flexible than previously assumed, sometimes less structured, sometimes more, sometimes experimental, sometimes proscribed, sometimes laissez-faire, sometimes expressing a strong hierarchy. The way it looked 
may have had everything to do with the time of year and what season it was. Seasonal changes in temperature and game migrations make it probable that human groups of various sizes alternated between being part-time foragers, part-time hunters, and part-time farmers. Their political structures also changed, sometimes hierarchical, sometimes very democratic, depending on the time of the year and the activities of the group. In a few groups, these traditions survived well into the modern era. Claude Levi-Strauss described the Nambiquara people who dispersed into foraging bands at one time of the year and concentrated into settlements during another. Additionally, as Graeber and Wengro note, there is also evidence for patterns of seasonal variation at monuments like Gobekli Tepe and Stonehenge. In southern Turkey, where Gobekli Tepe is located, between midsummer and autumn, large herds of gazelle descended onto the plain, and people gathered at the site to process wild nuts and wild cereal grasses into festive foods, which may also have fueled the construction process. Contrary to being centers of permanent settlement, these structures seem to have been relatively short-lived and culminated with great feasts before backfilling the structures and leaving them. Graeber and Wengro call this festive labor and point out that these oscillating patterns of life continued to exist long after the establishment of agriculture. Stonehenge, for instance, the most famous of these Neolithic structures, seems to have been dismantled a few generations after its construction. Similarly, the engineers who built Stonehenge seem to have rejected the practice of cultivating cereal grains, but continued to keep domesticated pigs and herds of cattle. They seem, the authors say, to have been neither foragers nor herders, but something in between. So it seems reasonable to speculate that human beings have spent at least the last 40,000 years experimenting with different ways of living and organizing societies. This might well mean that our ancestors were quite comfortable with what might seem to us to be social chaos and may have lived in very powerful creative ways, occupying liminal space betwixt and between, so to say. Such experimentation with the structures of living, one might even ascribe an aspect of play or playfulness to it, gives birth to new social and cultural forms. It also reminds me that Campbell often looked at life as a game or a play. We put on this mask, we pretend to be such and so, we can play the game conservatively or recklessly. All the variations and approaches to living one can imagine may be expressed in the game. I personally don't find it a stretch to suggest that life is a game or a play, and that we are, perhaps, merely actors who have forgotten we're playing roles. The metaphor of play or performance leads to the impression that there is much more to life than what we can experience on a material level. And if there were a life of some kind outside the game, outside the theaters in which we perform, well, that must be the real life that we're imitating. It's the attitude that allows one to participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. Choosing to live in joy Seeing life as a game exemplifies what Campbell calls the aristocratic spirit, which engages life nobly, honestly, and courageously, 
even while, or maybe because of, knowing that our experience of life is not the ultimate experience, but rather is a metaphor, a play. The things that are sorrowful and horrifying, even those that are joyful, are merely a part of the festival of passing form. And as such, all are a part of the cosmic game of hide-and-seek. If we understand that, we can understand that while we cannot cure the world of sorrows, as Campbell has said, we can choose to live in joy. Thank you for listening to Pathways with Joseph Campbell. It continues to be a genuine pleasure to provide these lectures and commentary. And please remember to check out our other podcasts on the MythMaker Podcast Network, which you can find at the Joseph Campbell Foundation website, jcf.org. Thanks again, and I'll be back next month with another rarely heard Joseph Campbell lecture from our archives. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer John Booker. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Tyler Lapkin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.